0: and welcome to the special episode of NZSA Live. The following content was recorded at our National Writers Forum in September 2018. We're releasing it during our 18 days of forum content to help New Zealand writers and authors through the national COVID-19 lockdown. Today's podcast features audio from the panel discussion, The Business of Being a Writer. The panel featured Katherine Robertson, Tracy Frar, Vicky Marsden, and Ranjana Gepta
1: Tena tato kato. Thank you very much for being to this, um coming to the session. The business of being a writer. My name is Kirsten LaHariville, and I've been part of making the forum happen. And I'm going to be your facilitator for today. So we're really lucky to have four awesome presentations on what I hope will cover all you need to know around the business of being a writer. I'll introduce first of um, the order we're gonna do. We're gonna go Tracy who's gonna talk about awards, residencies and other opportunities. So I'll just invite you onto the stage. okay, thanks.
2: Kia uh, ora My name is Tracy Farr and um, as Kirsten said I'm going to be talking to you today about securing grants and fellowships and residencies and other opportunities. Now if you want to just sort of um, kick back and listen to what I'm saying rather than sort of scribbling notes, um, I am going to pop a version of my notes up on my website on a little sort of slightly hidden page. So um, if you just um, grab it, a- I've uh, go to my website, business cards are there, um, and just go to uh, NZ Writers Forum 2018 and you'll find the notes there, or email me and I'll send them to you. Um, we'll put the URL up at the end. Anyway, that aside, um, I'm going to talk about those sorts of opportunities, so to give you a bit of context from where I'm coming from and what my kind of authority <laughs> that's a big word, to speak about these sorts of things. Um, I'll just give you a bit of context and background to who I am um, and where I'm coming from. So I'm a writer, I'm Wellington-based. I've had some success with applying for um, awards, grant funding. Um, I've had two rounds of Creative New Zealand Arts grants, one to work on my second novel, The Hope Fault, and one most recently to work on my third novel, which is in early stages. I've held a number of residencies in Australia and New Zealand, including uh, for over the last 10 years, uh, and I'm the current Michael King Writers Centre writer in residence, so I'm just staying up in Devonport for the for the next month. Um, and uh, but I've also been a judge or a preliminary judge or an assessor or an administrator or collator on a number of writing competitions and funding and fellowship applications, not just literary, but also in my other previous life in science research and kind of science science ad- administration so I've seen things from both sides I've been successful in applying things I've been unsuccessful at applying things applying for things and I've also seen what successful and unsuccessful applications and submissions are so um, my focus today is on ways and means of essentially buying yourself writing time or Research time or thinking time. So it's that whole idea of living to write and writing to live. I think that the that the forum's theme encompasses. Now this is mostly more writer alone in the shed time that I'm going to be talking about, but it can also be taking your writing out to the world time as well, because you might be trying to get funding for travel or to go to festivals or uh, uh, book fairs or to promote your book. Right. So, I'm going to just really briefly give you an overview of defining what we're talking about when we're talking about awards, grants, fellowships, and other opportunities. Touch on why they might or might not be right for you at any one time, any given opportunity really touch briefly on how to find out about these opportunities and then give you some rules because rules are great. I love rules. should have been a teacher or a, a, a prison warden possibly <laughs> would be better. So awards, grants and fellowships. When we're talking about awards, grants and fellowships, when I'm talking about them, I'm talking about the award of usually money uh, and or time and or support for something, so it might be the creation of new work, it might be the publication of work or the promotion of work, or it might be the development of your writing career, and that can take many forms. It might be mentorship, it might be other things. Um, And so some examples uh, are Creative New Zealand arts grants or Creative New Zealand quick response grants. Um, They might be a number of the NZSA awarded or administered Opportunities like the Hachette Mentorship, the Lillianida Ida Smith Award, the the Beetson Fellowship that Sue Wooten has just been awarded. They usually, these sorts of things are usually quite specific. Um, they're often awarded for a particular project or even a particular phase of a particular project. So they can be quite specific, um, and they usually often have a specific reportable outcome, although. Other awards and fellowships are more general, um, so an Arts Foundation award, for example, is going to be more general. Uh, they almost always, other than those kind of big Arts Foundation award ones, not that I would know, um, they almost always require reporting after the event. So that's like a real brief overview of the sorts of things we're talking about, and before I talk about some of the specifics of some of those awards, um, just an overview of the things you might want to consider when you're thinking about any opportunity, any opportunity from a short story competition to a, to a, a Creative New Zealand um, arts grant, why they might or might not be right for you at, right now for that opportunity. So. They take time and energy to apply for these opportunities. That that time and energy might be small or it might be very, very large. And and they take time and energy to report if you're successful. So there are costs and there are benefits and you need to weigh those up. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, You need to consider the stage of your career that you're at and or the stage of the project you're working on and, and that needs to be a really good fit for whatever the opportunity is. If you're an emerging writer, there's almost certainly no point in applying for something that's an opportunity that's very clearly stated to be only for established writers. There's just no point. You're wasting your time, you're wasting the opportunity, the, the funder's time. Um, any opportunity may require you to take leave from other commitments, employment, family, Sporting teams, you know, all of these things. So you need to weigh those up and consider them. Uh, they may have an impact on tax or other financial implications. Um, even just applying for something may lock you out of applying for the same or other opportunities. So if I just walk you through that a little bit, um, for example, you can uh, you might be applying for a residency. The guidelines for which say. You are not eligible to apply for this residency if you have held Creative New Zealand funding in the previous 12 months. So, you need to kind of have your brain around all of those things and be thinking a bit strategically about things. Or um, a re- another residency, for example, might say you, even though we have six or eight intakes for this um, for this residency over the two years, one individual can only apply once every two years. So once you apply, whether you're successful or not, you've you know you've you've done your dash and you need to wait. So. And that can be whether you're successful or not. So, so just take those things into into consideration and think about time, uh, think about timing, and 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 all of those considerations. Um, this is a, a kind of a kind of a loosey goosey one, but it's the idea of responsibility, which I know as guilt, um, which is if you are successful in getting an, an award or a grant or a thing. Um, Some of us feel a great sense of responsibility, um, you know, above and beyond the call of duty, and versus kind of just getting down, putting your head down, and doing your own thing, beholden to no one, you know, with nothing to report on. So, those two ways of being a writer are going to work for different people at different times, and so that's worth considering. So, that's my brief overview of some things you might want to consider about whether a particular opportunity is right for you at the time. I'd like to just briefly touch on residencies which are a particular type of award, grant or fellowship and just some of the particularities of those. Um, uh, they, it's a particular type of award that includes some residential component. Now they may include accommodation, so where you live and you may or may not be required to live in that accommodation. You may just be required to use it. Um, they, they may not include accommodation. They may include an office or a studio. It might be at a university. It might be a shed in a the backyard. Uh, they may be of short or long duration. They may be a couple of weeks. Um, Lit Crawl in Wellington is, uh, has just announced micro-residencies. are a couple of days. Um, or they may be up to a year or even more in duration. Um, There are different models for writing residencies or artists' residencies, they may just give you time and space and sometimes money to write, to write and to think and to read and create and they may ask nothing of you during that time right through to the other sort of Spec- end of the spectrum of, of residencies where there are a whole lot of responsibilities and duties that are required of you in terms of teaching and events and appearances and workshops and media and all sorts of stuff which may actually leave you quite limited time for your creative work so, and everything in between. So it's really worth knowing what you're letting yourself in for before you, you know if an opportunity is right for you. They may pay a stipend, kind of equivalent to a salary, or or almost so, or they may not pay a stipend. And in fact, you, they may require you to make a contribution to costs, to living costs, or to or to whatever. And they uh, often require travel and other costs, which you may or may not be able to get funding from. For, you know, so there are all these things to consider when you're considering a residency. Um, it's not all kind of golden, wonderful, perfect, um, the solution to all your writing problems. They are great though. Uh, they work for some people and they don't work for others. So um, they will almost always require leave or rearrangement of work and family and all those kinds of things, you know, someone to feed the cat, all that stuff. Um, and just briefly, another kind of um, opportunity that uh, that that what I'm talking about um, also applies to are competitions and calls for submissions. And you will all know the kind of thing I mean, um, short story competitions. Um, things like the Michael Giffkins Prize for an unpublished novel, which NZSA is administering at the moment and uh, and running, which closes on the 20th of November, 2018. Um, So all of those things are the sorts of opportunities that can feed into our lives as writers and that can give us writing time and writing space and and, and make that stuff happen. And um, you've probably all got your own ways of finding out about those opportunities. Um, And the NZSA website is an obvious first point of uh, point of contact for for most of or if not all of us and the e bulletin that comes out regularly um uh, but other ways that we can find out about those opportunities for me, I know a lot of it is via social media. that might be Twitter, it might be Facebook, it might be Instagram, it might be a combination of all those sorts of things and you can curate the information that 's coming to you if in Twitter you can you can use lists you can um, uh, you can um, Sorry, just lost my place. You can do all of those things. You can follow writing organizations, but that is actually a ho- There's a whole kind of art and science and kind of everything else to that, which we could spend a whole session talking about. So I'll just touch on that. The other thing you can do, of course, is sign up for mailing lists. So specific mailing lists, for example, Michael King Writers Center. Sign up. They'll let you know when the next call out for submissions for writing residencies. Uh, are happening, Creative New Zealand, all of those sorts of things. Or there might be more general, catch all <coughs> things that come out perhaps more occasionally. So, the International Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University of Wellington has a, an occasional newsletter which gives um, lists of opportunities. You might look more internationally because all of those are New Zealand focused, so you might look more internationally. So, for example, at Aerogram Writers Studio, aerogramstudio.com, they have all sorts of opportunities, residencies, and funding. Or you might look beyond the writing scene and look more at the arts, the creative kind of scene. Look a bit more broadly. Think a little bit outside the, just the, the narrow writer's field, so places like thebigidea.nz, which is an online hub for creative people in New Zealand, or uh, the Australian equivalent is artshub.com.au. So that's my super brief overview. Um, if I've got any more time... Seven minutes. Heaps. Excellent. Has anyone heard a word I've said or have I just gone down? Um, I've got some rules, because I love Tracy loves rules. Um, like Terry loves yoghurt, Tracy loves rules. Um, I've got five rules um, that you can use, we can call them guidelines, to consider when you're trying to work out if a particular opportunity is right for you at that time. And you can use this for a short story competition, you can use it for an application to the Marsden Fund to work on, um, I don't know, seaweeds taxonomy, that's what I used to do, but um, they'll they'll apply across the board. Number one, guidelines. Read the guidelines, whatever they're called, guidelines, terms and conditions, all of those things. That is the number one thing you need to do and you need to do it early and you need to do it often and you need to keep going back to those things because you need to understand what it is you're letting yourself in for and that's what you need to do as a as an absolute minimum. You might get to an opportunity from a a tweet or from a line in the NZSA bulletin. You need to follow that through, go past the press release, look at the guidelines. Number two, early, Um, start early. To try not to leave things till the last minute. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but if you start early in even considering whether an opportunity is for you, you will decrease, reduce the stress on yourself and you will reduce the stress and pressure on the people you're applying to funding for and they will love you. Uh, Number three is eligibility. Um, Determine your Eligibility, so check the T's and C's, check the FAQ, check the guidelines, follow through the different little bits of the menu because sometimes these things are a little bit hidden and there's another bit that you think, oh, I didn't see that before. Um, So follow all of those things, go down the wormhole and make sure that you're actually eligible before you put time and effort into it. If in doubt, there'll always be a contact, um, so hit them with a concise inquiry that outlines that, that details your specific circumstances, because they might be a bit weird. You know, it's like, I'm a, I'm this and this. Does that mean that I can or I can't? And they will let you know. Number four is timing. Determine your availability for the opportunity. There might be a strict time requirement for a residency, um, or there might be some other timing, um, timing uh, issues. Um, consider whether the timing is right. Are you at the best stage of the project that's involved? Um, Uh, or is it better for you to wait till six months' time there's another round that you can apply for or or a year down the track when you've got a bit more under your belt. Number five is cost-benefit. You know, as I've said before, there's time and energy to apply. Uh, There might be costs incurred if you're successful, um, all of those sorts of things. So just weigh up the costs and the benefits. And once you've gone through those five steps, guidelines early, eligibility, timing, cost-benefit, you'll have a really good sense of whether that opportunity is right for you at the time, and then you can go, yep, I'm going to commit, I'm going to apply. So once you've decided that, I have another five rules or guidelines for you. So the first is guidelines. Again, read the guidelines, (laughs) read them often. Um, check the deadline, uh, consider the time zone, although that usually works in our favour here in New Zealand, which is ace. Um, number two, compile and customise. Um, use the correct, uh, you're going to have to compile material for anything, it might just be a short story and a cover and a cover entry form, or it might be a whole 70-page uh, uh, you know, bundle of material. So you're going to have to compile and customise that material. So a couple of points, use the correct format even if you don't think it's important. The people you're sending it to do think it's important. That's why they've asked for it, because they're looking at um, 10 or 100 or 1,000 things coming through. You want to make it as easy as you can for them. Um, Customize, customize, (laughs) customize. Don't just send what you sent to the last thing. Don't just sort of add it to an email and send it in. I can highly recommend that you look at the details of the opportunity that you're applying to, whatever it is, and that you customise what you're sending. Look at the language that's used. Look at the the specifics of what's being asked for and respond to those specifically. Echo the language back to them. Show them that you know what they're about and that you're about the same thing. And that will increase your chances of kind of Coming to the top of the pile, uh, and if in doubt, ask questions. Um, the sort of material that you um, that you might want to be, the sort of material that you might be compiling, depending on what the opportunity is, might include letters of support. If you are asking people to to write letters of support for you, give them information about what you're applying for, ask them early, um, and be very very grateful to them when they do send them through to you because it's a lot of work for somebody to kind of drop things in. Do think, don't ask them the night before it's due if you can <laughs> avoid it at all. And, um, and understand that sometimes people can't provide a letter of support for whatever reason. They might have supported someone else for the same thing or yeah, there are all sorts of reasons. Um, biographical or CV information will almost always be required. There might be a sample of writing required. It might be a complete piece of work required, so the unpublished manuscript award or a short story competition. It's going to be a complete piece of work. A synopsis, a cover letter, an email, a statement about artistic merit, um, a budget, uh, some statement about the process, a timeline, KPIs. All of these things will be outlined in the T's and C's, the guidelines, the, 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 the statement of what they want from you. So just make sure that you're giving them what they want in the format that they want it. So um, so. Uh, just quickly, um, oh, I was just going to say. So, for example, with Creative New Zealand, the package of stuff that they want from you is they want, they, they want to know the what, so the idea, how, the process, who, the people, how much, the budget, and a bundle of support material. Yeah, so, that's the kind of thing. You, so, you need to know what you need to compile. Uh, number three, then, is read and check, so read the guidelines, check your material, really just another call to check that you're sending them what they've asked for. Uh, don't give them an excuse to put your application or submission straight into the reject pile. Um, and if in doubt, ask questions, they're there to help you and they will, they're will. they just as keen to, to, to get a great application as, as you are to, to supply one. Number four, phone a friend. if um, Get someone to check your submission, especially if you're not a details person. I, you will not be surprised to learn, am a details person. Um, So I'm really good at checking my own um, applications. But if you're not, and you will know if you're not, get somebody to do it for you. Um, Number five, read the guidelines, hit submit the earlier the better, but sometimes you know, it's going to be late. And that's, uh, that's it from me. So um, as I said, I think we'll put the URL up later, but um, find me online, email me if you want um, sort of a press C of that.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Tracy. That was a really helpful overview of the pros and cons and what to think about. I'd now like to invite Vicki Mazen of Highspot Literary to come up. She's going to talk about pitching, and she was one of the publishers that was part of Perfect Pitch, of which we had a record number of really great submissions, and a whole lot, a nice group of people got to meet with various agents and editors and publishers over the weekend. So thanks for that as well.
3: Hello, everybody. Um, I thought it was very interesting the parallel of what Tracy was talking about in terms of like putting stuff together for um, awards is very similar to what I'm going to be telling you about um, how to put a pitch together. Um, so who we are? Uh, Nadine and I have both worked in publishing in various forms for over 30 years. Um, me, primarily, well, yeah, New Zealand and um, children's publishing, educational publishing, um, Harp Collins. Penguin. Um, Nadine has worked in South Africa and New York with her own publishing company and a magazine publishing. We've both worked as an agent for a prior um, agent agency called um, Wordlink. And then at the beginning of this year we thought, you know what, we really see such a wealth of talent in this country here that we wanted to start uh, an indigenous agency looking after New Zealand writers and taking them to the world, which is what we've done. Um, we are not manuscript assessors, and I just need to really clarify that. If You guys are all writers, you're all professionals, um, so you need to start using, accessing um, the professionals who are out there to help you. So use manuscript assessors, use editors. Um, we are the people that you come to when you want us to sell you to the world, that's what we do. Now literary agents, we call ourselves a full service agency because we don't want to just take one of your books and sell it and say that's great, off you go. We want to look after your whole career and that involves um, looking after all your publishing over what we hope is a long and profitable career. Plus we're also pitching you to places like Amazon, Netflix, um, production companies in the UK and Australia because a writer these days is now more than just the writer of a book. You can be writing something for television or something for a movie or um, online. So there's so much more than that. So we consider ourselves sort of an over, overarching, what we call a full service agency. Um, our main, as I say, our main priority is to get your manuscript on the desk of publishers. It's opening the door and getting you on a desk, because if you've been in this business a while, you'll see that, you know, publishers will say, only agented submissions. We don't want unagented submissions. Publishers are time poor, very, very time poor, and they have hundreds and hundreds of things that they're reading or considering or working on. So what we have to do as your agent, and what I'm gonna help you with your pitch, is to actually make your project stand out just like Tracy was talking about for award submissions, make you stand out. So when it hits that publisher's desk, there's something in there that they go, ooh. I like the sound of that, yes I'm going to read more. That's our job, our job is to get you seen, your job as a writer is to have put all that work into your fantastic craft so therefore it takes you through to the next stage where you actually get offered a contract and then we come in again and we negotiate the contract, we make sure you're looked after, we get you the best deals and we're also the buffer between a publisher and an author. Um, And so if you've got an issue with, you know, the cover design that they've done, and you don't want to necessarily go to your editor and go, oh my God, I hate that cover. We'll do that for you. So we play, we're the bad guy, I guess, for any difficult conversations that happen. Um, But most of our time is spent tracking down the best publishers for your projects. We, you know, we work with our, our authors and give them guidance on their scripts but as I say a lot of our time is spent finding out who to sell you guys to. Um, So number two, what makes a good pitch? Okay, now I was really intrigued to see that this was called the business of being a writer because publishers are businesses and at the end of the day they want to take on projects that is going to make them money. They have boards to answer to. They have salaries to pay. They have people that they're accountable to. So they want to take on books that they think is going to are going to be big winners for them, make money for them, and therefore they can then reinvest back into their company and publish more writers. So you guys have got to think about marketing yourself and marketing your your product. Okay, make me as an agent that you're pitching to, and then the publisher that I'm then going to on-pitch you to. Make me excited about what you're doing. Don't tell me everything. Pitch me just enough to get me excited. I like to think when I'm emailing a publisher, I have one page of the email, so when they open it, I want it on the screen. I don't want them to have to be scrolling down lots and lots and lots to read to the guts of it. I want that key Bit to be on that front page that jumps out at them, and that's how you guys should think of yourselves as well. Okay, um, so think of your pitch like the back cover blurb of your book. Okay, make it pithy, make it exciting, sell me. Try for a tagline. Um, you know, if I said things like "Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water," you all know what I'm talking about, or in space, no one can hear you scream, okay, we've all got that so it might sound cheesy but publishers like to put you in a little box, they like to think, okay, this is going to be the next Jojo Moyes if it is, okay, it's going to be the next Dan Brown, it's going to be the next John Green, so if your style or your genre if you can compare yourself favourably, I mean don't don't say you're the next John Green if you're nothing like the next John, John Green, but you know, find something that a publisher will have a mental image so that then when they're approaching you, they've already got in your head how they're going to position you in the market. Because believe me, that's if they like your pitch, that's just the start. They have to get you through an acquisitions meeting where they're presenting to everyone in that publishing team right down to the person who's picking and packing the books in many cases. So they've got salespeople, marketing people, accountants, are all sitting in a meeting wanting to know that this book is going to make them money. So if the publisher can go in with a very succinct pitch and say, this is going to be the next Jojo Moyes because And the author is just like this because you've done the job for that publisher, they're going to get it through and they're not going to have too many arguments. Okay, so you've got to make it easy for them. (laughs) So where's your book going to sit on the bookshelf? You know, who does it compare to? If I'm going to walk into a bookshop, where am I going to see you? Now that's even more important with non-fiction. And a non- if you're writing non-fiction, the pitch that you do has to be full of really hard competitor analysis. Um, it's got to have a list of chapters with a couple of line descriptions. It's got to have other titles that are in the market. It's got to. Tell me what's different about your non-fiction project. If you're doing a wine book or something, you've got to you've got to pitch your stuff differently. But you've got to be really analytical about it. Fiction it it can be a little bit, you know, it's more of a a, a nice sally thing. So um, tell me about yourself as well. Um, you know, if you've got a million Instagram followers, that's important. You know, because publishers want to know that you're out there in the market doing something. If any of you were at the recent Romance Writers um, Conference, Kathleen Schiebling from Harlequin spoke about pitching and she put a really, we we actually um, Instagrammed her little pitch document up on, um, on our Instagram page and it's very succinct and it's basically a really nice little intro where it's, hello, I'm Vicky, uh, my story, X, it's targeted at so you talk about your market, it's how many words, it features, you know, so-and-so, who is so-and-so, and this, that's where you get into your emotional hook. Now, Tracy said again, say back the words that the publisher's already said. So if you've gone on their website or on our website and see that I'm looking for contemporary woman's fiction that will make me cry, then when you're pitching to me, if you don't say in your email or your pitch, this is gonna make me cry, then you haven't done that research. No, no, that sounds really basic and really silly, but it's, it's as ba- it really is as basic as that. Go onto the publisher's website or our website, see what else is out there, see what they've published. Have a look that the last six months, this particular editor has published books on strong female characters all facing adversity. If that's your book, tell me in the pitch. My, my female character is very strong and she's undergone a terrible time because of blah blah blah. That immediately hooks into exactly what that publisher is looking for. So, and as I say, tell me a little bit about yourself to really sort of hook it and, and sell it. Um, just very quickly, do's and don'ts. Please do use a manuscript assessor. Alright, please, please. You're all professionals. Invest in yourself. Be prepared to pay money to a really good editor or a really good manuscript assessor to get your manuscript up to speed. Um, And do your homework. Look around any agency's website that you want to pitch to or any publisher that you want to pitch to. You know, if they're only publishing dystopian sci-fi, don't send a rom-com to them. Um, Don't talk about, you know, how, how much your kids love the book. You know, um, your kids will love anything that you that you write. But seriously, if you've written a cookbook and Nigella likes it, tell tell us that. Um, and do be patient. I mean, it takes it's months. I mean, seriously, months and months and months. And just when you've given up, a publisher will come back and go, "Actually, I've just read that pitch and I really like it." And it's like, oh, I thought you'd died. You know, it's like it's really is months. Um, do have a day job. Don't sell yourself short. This is a really bad thing that New Zealanders do. Um, you know, you are all talented writers, otherwise you wouldn't be here wanting to invest in your career. Don't sell yourself short. Do listen to advice, however. And, I mean, we've had some authors who have had some tremendous advice from assessors and editors. They've refused to believe it, and it's gone nowhere. So you know, um, Don't be afraid to reach out to an agent. Or a publisher, what's the worst that can happen? They can say, "No, I'm sorry." Um, and on the other hand, don't if you are agented with someone or with a publisher, don't be afraid to break up with them either. Um, pub- publishers and agents, or agents, are actually only as good as the contact list that they have. And another agent may have a much better contact list for your type of books. So you know, it's all about relationships. It's about you know trusting your agent, your agent trusting their author, and wanting to do the best. Um, and as I say, be prepared to hustle for a sale. Um, how can you work with your agent? So, as I said before, we're all overworked. Publishers are incredibly overworked. Agents—I mean, you know—we have gazillion submissions too. Um, and long gone are the days of simply sort of handing over your work and going, "Thank you, off you go. Oh, I've done my bit. I'm done now." No, it doesn't work that way. So you've got to do as much research as your agent does so jump on things like Publishers Marketplace it's only 25 bucks a month Um, that will tell you all the deals of the month it'll give you contacts for what publishers are publishing what Um, follow um, the hashtag mswl on twitter that's the manuscript wish list editors are always tweeting out about what they're looking for Um, we get a lot of our contacts from there don't, if you're with an agent, send them a list, say, look, I've just seen this great deal has been done by, you know, Random House New York, by this particular editor, looks like they might like my book. That's great, we love proactive authors, so be very proactive. Um, and get engaged with social media. Um, I was talking with Carolyn and another lady out the front before. Get get into um, Instagram as a, as a nice toe in the water. If you're not comfortable, you know, Tweeting up a storm, don't, because there's nothing worse than being somewhere that you know you feel very uncomfortable about. But do get do get to follow or guest right write or, or get involved with other pages. So you're actually out there because I tell you what, if I send your script to a publisher and they go, Yeah, Vicky, that looks really good, what's the first thing they're gonna do? they're gonna look for you online. They're gonna immediately Google you, or they're gonna go onto your social media sites and they're gonna wanna see how you're engaging with your potential readers. Because publishers like nothing more than a really active author who's actually out there engaging with their readers. Um, As I say, you don't have to do anything, but you do have to do something. Um, So find out hashtags, get onto hashtags like, you know, bibliophile, book lover, you know she reads books you know there's a gazillion of them um okay i've got four minutes Five. all right i'm just going to talk very quickly about trends in the current market okay what we're finding now it, this is all very subjective okay basically publishers as i said their businesses they're going to make decisions on what's going to keep them in business so you know they you know a rejection from one publisher doesn't mean that you have to give up completely because they may be heading in one particular direction and it's just a matter of us finding someone else over there. But there are some opportunities and areas of fatigue. Um, there's. Um, a- Great appetite at the moment for debut novels, which is actually really good news for probably a lot of writers here, because it used to be the debut novel was like, oh no, you know, because they have to have a history. Well, I don't know how you get a history unless someone takes a punt and publishes you, but anyway. So we're actually finding a little bit more interest in debut novels, which is good. Now, previously self-published novels also are getting a little bit of interest. Now, in the past, if you'd said to a publisher someone was self-published, it was like the kiss of death. But now what it's actually showing is that you're actually out there getting an audience. Now, they may not pick up your already published novel, but they'll want to look at something new from you. Um, Diversity. Um, There's a very good quote from Beverly Cleary that says, if you don't see the book you want on a shelf, write it. Okay. So, underrepresented groups and own voices. Very, very important. Publishers are all about wanting to see own voices coming through. Strong female characters, female led stories, all women from history. Strong, again, female right through. And historical fiction, I've been taught, I've been asked for lush historical fiction. Um, And proceed with caution with thrillers, Um, books about girls, Girl on a Train. Been there before, girl. Gone girl. Lots of girl books. So proceed with caution. Sci-fi, more Margaret Atwood than Little Green Men. Um, crime, definitely an appetite for crime. Vanda Simon, looking at you. Um, so move beyond Scandinavia, but looking for you know an interesting um, picture books. We've had a lot of pushback on rhyming. It's too hard for translation apparently, and no preachy picture books. Um, and non-fiction scientific voices addressing hard science in an appropriate, accessible voice. Um, Anyway that's very quickly and at the end of the day it is a fickle old world based purely on the whims of a few people who like or don't like what you do but you just got to keep on pushing and just one final word once you do get that magical publishing contract
1: just realize it's just the beginning very hard, hard road. Thank you, Vicky. I think that was a really nice compliment to Tracey's session, so thank you. I'm just going to invite Catherine Robertson up now. Right, hello. I can see, I'm just going to have
4: a look at you once with my glasses, and then I'm going to read my notes. Um, I'm Catherine Robertson. I've been published since 2011. I started with Random House, and now I'm with Penguin Random House through no fault of my own. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about uh, the opportunities, which follows on very much from what um, Tracy and Vicky were saying, uh, especially what Vicky just said about the, once you're published, that is only the start. And I mean, Chris Ells mentioned this in his, um, the Janet Frame lecture, and he talked about writers being visible. And so I'm going to talk to you about opportunities to speak in public or have your voice out there. Um, that doesn't include other opportunities that you have to spread your writing elsewhere, this is really about just um, you either in public or sometimes in the safety of a radio studio, which is quite good. But I've always remembered the Jerry Seinfeld joke about um, that people, research had shown that people were more afraid of public speaking than they were of death. So that if you were at a funeral, you'd rather be in a coffin than up the front giving the eulogy. <laughs> And a lot of us, and writers are very, you know, we are traditionally introverted people. We like being in our den. We don't like being out in the world. And, you know, I only dress up to go to things like this. And when I'm at home, I'm wearing the same thing over and over until personal hygiene or friends and family <laughs> tell me I have to change. So, um, so why do it? I mean, why do public events? Um, and it is about visibility. You are just a name on a book, and that's the other thing. You know, even with singers and... And maybe we're in the same boat as artists. We people see our work, but they don't tend to see us. And we are also very bad at updating our, you know, author photos on covers and things like that and websites, so if nobody recognises us when we're in public. Um you, why are you snickering so much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it is a really good way to build your visibility. It's a good way to build your pri- profile. Um, it's also a fantastic way to meet other writers to do these things because you're often, even if you're just in a, gr- a small group or you are in a big setting like this or a big writers' festival, it's a great way to meet people. Um, you can be paid. You should be paid. Uh, most most things will writers' festivals. Um, I get paid a little bit for one thing I do on radio. I don't get paid for the other thing, do we Tracy? No. Um, uh, but you can and you can also, if you're, doing, you're volunteering for things like chairing or um, being part of panel discussions, you can often get your travel and your accommodation paid for you. So some of those cost aspects go out and in some cases you get the wonderful free pass where you can go into any session that you like apart from the really popular ones. Sometimes you have to keel at the door and wait till they've let everybody in in the Auckland Writers' Festival. Um, So if you ever see a lot of people being shunted to one side, those are all the participants, and we just have to wait till everybody's in. It's quite good fun. Um, It is fun. It is fun to do these things, but, uh, and this is very much another message of Tracy's, these things are work. So you can't go to a Writers' Festival and just relax and enjoy everything. You have to prepare and you have to do a good job of what you're doing because... Obviously, uh, if you've done it once and you enjoy it, you want to keep getting invited back. So the sort of events and speaking opportunities I'm talking about, um, well, they can be as simple as book launches. They can be your own book launch, uh, but they could be somebody else's book launch. Uh, last week, I chaired, or well, chaired. I sort of interviewed Mark Broach, um, who was a former books and culture editor at The Listener and he's launched a book for writers called A Word to the Wise, and he had it at Unity Books in Wellington. And so I just went along and asked him questions, and we just had a little one-on-one interview. But, you know, that's me doing... I mean, he bought me dinner, so great. But but that's me me getting out there and doing something with another writer at their book launch. Um, You can introduce people at a book launch as well. That's quite good fun. Writers' festivals are probably the big one, um, and you either get on as a panelist, you know, or somebody you get to appear. and You can do readings, or you can be part of a panel discussion. The harder job at a writers' festival is chairing sessions. Um, I, because I'm with a, a bigger publishing house, they, the publicists there, try to get you into writers' festivals. Not they prefer you to be there as a participant under your own steam. But the second best thing is to get you there as a chair, uh, if they think that you, can, that you can do it. So I think my publicist at the time was wonderful, and she nagged Anne O'Brien at the Auckland Writers' Festival until Anne went, Oh, right! And, but she, she gave me my first ever chairing job, was David Mitchell, the, the writer, Cloud Atlas. And, and I, just, I suppose I didn't know what I didn't know, so I didn't know how terrifying it was until I'd done it. And I mean, he was delightful. He was a delightful human being. And but it, when you're also in a, in a, as I can see you because the lights aren't up, but in a, in um, so sort of the big you know sort of halls in the writers' festival, you can't see anybody. You can see blurs in the front row because the lights are so bright on you. And when it comes to question time, and then the lights go up and you can see everybody. There were like two thousand people, and I just went, oh, okay. <laughs> and a lot of pressure because he's a writer that everybody loves. So. That, I think the after, the you know, people say you get pre-social anxiety and you can also get post-social anxiety. I think the post-social anxiety of that session lasted for a whole year. <laughs> Honestly, it was just horrendous. But, however, I did, inter- and I did enjoy it. Um, the other thing you can do as a speaking thing is radio. Uh, there are various, uh, book reviews are probably the main one, um, and we're not talking just about Radio New Zealand, but there are, I mean, Savannah does... Uh, access radio down south um, and you know there are uh, community radio stations and I mean even the sort of I've been on you know like the hits or something like that you know talking to people there so there are opportunities even the, in the commercial radio stations. I do um, I do the panel which is a different thing altogether which is the current affairs discussion show on Radio New Zealand um, but I quite often turn up on Jesse Mulligan's book critic slot as well, which is not reviews, and it's about talking about news and things that's going on in the book industry. He's really great. Um, Another thing you can do, I mean there's readings, and quite often you can do those at writers' festivals or at your own book launches, Um, and then there are sort of, you know, people put on events where writers are invited to come and just read their own work. I've done the storytelling, um, True Stories Live, I've done that a couple of times. And that is when you tell a true story and it has to be eight minutes long and you have to do it without notes. So it's quite a lot of work. I think the first one I did, I was standing there and my left leg started shaking in my, um, in my trouser leg. Fortunately, it was not trousers. And I couldn't stop it. It was nerves. And, uh, but fortunately, nobody noticed, unless they were just being very kind and didn't notice my slight palsy <laughs> kind of stance. Um, so how do you get to participate in these things? Uh, if as I say, I was with a um, um with penguin, so they will often go out and and pitch me to writers' festivals uh, on my behalf but there's no nothing stopping you approaching organizers of writers' festivals. some of them are quite scary like Anne, but most of them are really lovely um, and um, so, you, you can, I mean, especially if you are self publishing. Um, and again, it, you know, it goes back to what Tracy and Vicky were saying. It's like if you know your market, you know your book, um, you know where you would fit in, you know where the issues and the areas of interest are in your book, those are the things that you can pitch to Writers' Festival organisers. Um, and the same with radio. I mean, every radio personality has a producer, just put your name forward. Uh, but do, you, do your homework. I mean, if that's the mantra of all of us, it's got to be do your homework. Find out what they're interested in, go online and listen to previous episodes, etc., and figure out whether you would be a good fit for that. And um, you can sort of, you know, you can sort of nag your publisher, and if you have a particular liking for certain writers' festivals, there are some quite really cool little small ones around the place, not just the big ones. Um, And that's the other thing: if you are in an area where there's a writers' festival, and you live in that area, so I'm got a house in Hawke's Bay as well as Wellington. It will be my full-time house, but we're just taking a while to get there. Um, But So I get invited to the Hawke's Bay Writers Festival, which is fantastic, because I'm now a local writer, and that's just very cool fun indeed. But the thing is, you also need to, if you you do a good job of whatever it is that you've done, um, you will get invited back. I actually got on the panel because I... One of the very early sort of gigs I did was um, there's Yarns and Barnes, is a book festival in the Waiarapa. And actually, Vander and I were in the same gig, and we, they have a celebrity debate. Oh, what well, shall we say celebrity? A humorous <laughs> debate, yeah. Semi-celebrity, be a celebrity debate. And it's just humorous. And I did that. Our team won, just saying. Um, and uh, but somebody in the audience from radios Saw me and thought that I would be a good voice for radio, and so I got invited on. So you never know where one opportunity or somebody seeing you is going to going to lead. Um, Peter Mathias, the the celebrity chef who now does culinary tours, uh, she got a television contract because when she wrote her first book uh, and she was doing book tours, she was so flamboyant and amazing that somebody from TV picked her, and then she got a slot and went from there. So. You know, it's, it's a great way to sort of lead on to other opportunities and not necessarily just by doing the job well, but also from the people that you meet. And I think the thing is, if you're, if you're up for it, um, just ask, ask and say, oh, I'd really like to do that. How, how, do, how would I go about, you know, putting my name forward for this? And don't be, don't be afraid of, you know, you people might say, oh, no, that's never, you know, not going to happen, but something else will happen it well. Um, skills. What skills do you need? In public speaking events, you obviously need to be able to speak well. I mean, I've had no formal training whatsoever, and I have a tendency to speak fast. Um, I have had to learn to dial that back quite a lot. You need to be fluent, uh, you need to be articulate, and you do need to not be hesitant at all. You. Um, you need to be able to think on your feet. Not so much if you're doing readings and things like that where there is a script, but if you're doing chairing for panels or just you know one writer, or if you're doing something on radio, you will often get a question or something thrown at you and you may have really prepared a whole bunch of questions or you may have your little script there. And then like, so I would do Jesse Mulligan, he might just ask me a question and I'm not prepared for that at all. So I have to think for, of that answer on my feet. And if you're chairing, the, the, the discussion can go in all sorts of ways. Or the answer can be a third of the length that you were hoping that it was when you sort of timed it out. And you have to just be able to keep that, um, yeah, you know, keep that conversation going. And you have to be able to look that it look like it's not an effort for you to keep it going. And if you're doing chairing, you tend to be like the duck on the water. So you're supposed to be gliding along smoothly, and your legs are frantically paddling underneath. But once you sort of, I mean, I think. One thing i found is I don't say yes to things that I don't think I have an affinity for. If I don't think I have an affinity for the work or the subject, um, that I think I'm going to either be out of my depth or just not be able to do it justice, then I don't say yes to that. I think you need to have a genuine interest in the person or the subject that you're talking about, because that really comes across. Um, The the downside of that is that when you are preparing for, uh, say, chairing an author, you can do your research and your preparation to the point where you know everything. You can go on mastermind about that person. And then you just have this tendency to want to let all that knowledge out. And you cannot do this. You have to be restrained. And I think somebody, the, the great uh, phrase that somebody used to me is, if you're chairing, you're there to steer, not star. And so you have, I mean, I especially because I get very keen on these things and I want to talk to people and... You know, and I might talk over them, and I just, you cannot do that. And so I just have to pull back and rein in my natural curiosity and let them do the talking and not try and show, it's not about me showing how, how smart I am or how nerdy I am on this particular subject. It is nerve-wracking. Um, you are going to be nervous about it. It's just, you can't, you know, you just can't get away from that. I mean, part of that, the adrenaline does help you focus. I mean, I was preparing for the... I did a Tree Stories Live in Featherston, Booktown, and I was in the little room that I was being put up in, which was lovely, and I was trying to rehearse it. And I just... I basically I just cocked it up every time that I said it out loud. I was trying to time it, and I couldn't get it right. And I just thought, OK, cool, I think I know it. On the night, not a mistake. Nothing was perfect. So adrenaline helps with that. I know. <laughs> But you do, one thing you do need to be, especially on radio and when you're chairing sessions or when you're um, uh, participating in sessions, you have to have a really good sense of timekeeping. Um, Yay, yeah, John, yeah, he was so fabulous, but, but you do, and um, when you're chairing sessions you do have a clock usually, but you have to have some sense in your head of the flow of it and how you're going to sort of bring it to the end, etc. You may have to skip some of the questions that you have pre-prepared. Again, you're kind of thinking on your feet. Um, you, you do have to have, because most writers' festivals in particular are very, very strict about their timekeeping. And they don't necessarily get a great hook and pull you off, but they are very strict and very, they will be very grumpy if you go over ta- time, and if you want to get invited back, you finish on the dot. I have got quite good at doing that. Um, I think having a sense of humour is, being able to speak and be funny, I think, you know, I, I write humorous fiction, so when I, as part of my, that's just part of my personality, that's why I write those books. So when I go on radio, or when I'm speaking, or when I'm cheering, again, you know, making jokes and having a sense of humor is good, but I think actually just keeping your sense of humor, not being too earnest about it, um, will help you also manage the nerves in speaking. Um, in my, yeah, so uh, the tips, I think, I think I gave you some of the tips for chairing, which is prepare, I mean, really prepare and kind of go over the session in your head and work out what the questions are going to be. Try to go and look at other interviews, read other interviews or look at other sessions that they have done, writers have done, um, so that you're not asking exactly the same questions. Most festivals will let you get in touch. With a writer beforehand, um, and you can communicate. Some writers don't want to see the questions beforehand; they're practiced and they go, "Yep, yeah, no, I'm good." Some people get very anxious and really want to see the questions beforehand so that they're prepared. So you just do what people want you to do. Um, I think, yeah, just just learning how to relax in the chair because that, and if you look like you're enjoying yourself you put the audience at, at, at ease because you put the writers at ease and you put the audience at ease. So even if you're completely faking it and you're a mess of nerves, you have to just try and um, just portray this kind of, I think Mark said to me, he said, you were so calm. And I go, I practice a lot of being calm when I'm sitting in the chair. For reading and storytelling, um, practice those as well and make sure that your timing is right. Uh, because that is, that is vital. There's nothing worse than getting a reading. I mean, I, I think I had to do one at a writers' festival once, and just, it had just been a big rush, and I had thought I was going to do this particular reading, and then I read it and realised that it was about half the time that I needed, even with me reading in my usual fast way. So I had to find another bit, and I honestly had about ten minutes before I had to go on and do this. Don't do that to yourself. I mean, give yourself plenty of time. What else have I got to say? No, that's it. It's sort of um, panel, <laughs> panel participation. Um, I think the first time I went on, uh, and i talk about Writers' Festival panels, but when the first time I went on the panel radio show, and I've never done this before in my life, and the thing is, you know, I'm in Wellington Studio, and Jim Moore is in Auckland, so you don't see him. And often the <laughs> other panel participants are somewhere else as well, so there's only you and the producer, you know, and usually some weird stuff, and there's like a roll of toilet paper that sits in there. I don't. What is that about? I don't know. And uh, but you, um, so you can't see. You can't get those visual cues about when people are going to talk. And so you can't. And you can't be polite. So the first time I was on, I was fortunately with somebody in the Wellington studio, but it was on with um, David Farrer, the political blogger who just goes like this and and I just thought you know after he'd kind of gone I thought I have to do this and so I had to just take that leap and leap in and talk and you get good at doing that also when you're part of a panel you know you will find that there are some talkative people and if you want to come across you kind of have to just just don't wait for that pause too much you just have to go in there really um, and the same, if you're chairing a panel and you've got somebody who's dominant, you have to be the sort of inexorable but calm force that goes over the top of them, and shuts them down and lets the other people talk. So there is a real skill to doing those sort of things, um, particularly chairing. But good chairs are few and far between. Uh, and you get once I once I've started to do it and started to practice, I'm now getting more opportunities to do it, and I will do it because I really enjoy it. It's 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 quite stressful, it requires a lot of work, but you do get paid, and even if you do only one session at a writers' festival,
1: you get the free pass. Thanks very much, Catherine, and I always think that you demonstrate, you really practice what you preach, so oh. thanks. <laughs> Lastly, I'm just inviting Ranjana up. She's just going to talk to us about some of the things that we need to know about finances and tax. I'm as Christy has already
5: said and I'm a tax lecturer at University of, um, Auckland University of Technology, not at AUT, uh, at AUT, not at Auckland University. The premises you are here. Um, and I've been teaching tax for uh, more than 20 years, and besides teaching tax, I do provide services to clients privately in consultancy. And I do a lot of research, so if you look on website, on AUD website, um, you can find all my research publications with regard to various compliance issues, small businesses, and of course I do on international tax as well. So I'll start with the basic rules first, um, that what we have in New Zealand. We have a present Income Tax Act, which is 2007, um, and under that Income Tax Act, we have Section IA, uh, which determines that, um, the how um, tax will be imposed on net income, and of course uh, that section sets out the rules to calculate tax liability. And besides Income Tax Act, we have Tax Administration Act 1994 um, which sets out the powers and responsibilities of Inland Revenue Commissioner and of course, it sets out our obligations, the taxpayers' obligations as well. And on the top of that, we have another act, Goods and Services Act, which I hope most of the people know. And Goods and Services Tax deals with imposition and collection of consumption. Tax because GST or weight is on consumption. Um, these are the tax bases in New Zealand. Income, uh, income is the main base, and it is um, income tax is levied on individuals, companies, and other business entities um, like trusts. And um, on individuals, income tax is levied. Li- of course, you are if you are employee as well as you are self-employed. So, I'm not talking about employees because employees pay pro, uh, tax at work, um, PAYE, deducted at source. But self employed people have to pay provisional tax if they exceed the limit and they have to pay their final tax, which is called as terminal tax. And on their interest and dividend and some contracting income, they have to pay RWT, resident withholding tax. And if you are receiving some income from overseas, Um, where you are non-resident, on that income sometimes you may be paying non-resident withholding tax. So if you have written for a publisher based in USA or Australia, then that publisher or the editor will deduct non-resident withholding tax from the amount they pay you. Um, And besides the tax based on income, the consumption taxes is levied on individuals and businesses as well, who spend and use goods and services. So whenever we buy goods or we consume services, we have to pay GST. And besides that, we have to pay excise duties as well or excise taxes, and we have to pay rate, uh, road user charges as well. So see, these are some of the taxes we pay. Um, for individuals, that's what we are interested in. I hope everyone knows the tax rates. These are the tax rates, and these tax rates have not changed since 2011. Um, up to first 14000 we pay um, 10.5%. Then in the next tax tier, or bracket, from 14001 to 48000 we pay 17.5%. And if it exceeds 48000 Up to seventy thousand, the tax rate is thirty. And anything above seventy thousand, we pay thirty-three percent tax. And these tiers apply to every taxpayer. So even if someone is earning hundred thousand dollars on first fourteen thousand, he or she will pay ten point five. So don't get miscarried or uh, misunderstand this, because sometimes people think, okay, I'm earning $80,000, I have to pay on 80,000 33%. No, it doesn't work like that, okay? Then the key question for which uh, I'm here is to uh, discuss some of the deductions when we are doing an activity, small activity, even if we are entitled to claim. A taxpayer net income is calculated by deducting from taxpayer income all the deductions which they have incurred in deriving that income. Income Tax Act 2007 has a section, general permission for determining what is deduction. Um, of course, I'm not going over the whole uh, Part D, but under Part D we have Section d which de- defines broadly the deductions. And what is deduction uh, broadly is expenditure or loss incurred in deriving income or carrying on a business for the purpose of deriving income. So, as it says very clearly, if any expenditure is incurred to derive any income, which means um, which has a nexus, the term used in the act actually is nexus, relationship to that uh, income, that expenditure is deductible. Um, so yes, that expenditure is deductible but um, besides Section DA1, we have Section DA2 which prohibits or limits some deductions. For example, if the expenditure is private or domestic in nature, when I'm doing my job, even if I'm working, I'm in business, I buy meal, uh, lunch. That's my private expenditure, that will not be deductible. But if I'm um, working overtime, then if my employer provides me lunch, then the cost for the lunch for the employer will be deductible because I'm working overtime, more than eight hours. But if I'm working normal, then the cost of the lunch is not deductible. Same, the travel expenses, um, if I am an employee, they are not deductible. But if I am a contractor, then travel expenses are deductible. So that's the difference between um, what we could say employment limited or private or domestic or capital item expenses, they are not deductible. If you buy a laptop to do your work, cost of laptop is not deductible because laptop is a capital item but laptop will depreciate. A laptop is used to do the work, the business income uh, is derived. Depreciation on laptop will be allowed as deduction. So that's how it works. So I'll cover uh, some of the items which are, um, uh, I mean, uh, very common um, in small businesses. The first item I've taken is motor vehicle expenses because people do travel, um, when they are doing a work. Where a person intends to claim an expense deduction for a motor vehicle, that is used partly for business purposes and partly for other purposes. They must calculate the proportion of business use um, either uh, by maintaining a log book or actual records like diary or calendar um, to record all travel uh, incurred uh, or undertaken when you are driving. So what is logbook? Briefly I have explained here. A person must keep a logbook as per law for a period of 90 consecutive days. So logbook should be maintained continuously for 90 days. The logbook test period is used to establish the average proportion of travel by the vehicle for business purposes during the logbook. Period. So during that 90 day period, how much travel from the vehicle you have undertaken to derive business income. And this proportion will be used for deductions using the cost method or the kilometre method. So to claim a deduction for motor vehicle expenses, we have two methods in the act. One is cost method, actual cost in income, or one you could use the kilometre rate method, which is prescribed by Inland Revenue. Um, what your logbook should have? Logbook should uh, record the start and end of 90-day period. The day you start, for example, you start the logbook from Tomorrow, tomorrow is 24th um, September. Then it should be 24th September to October, November till 23rd December will be 90 days consecutive period completed. Vehicle odometer readings at the start and end of death period. What is your reading? Odometer reading tomorrow, and then what will be your odometer reading on 23rd of December when 90 days period is over. The date of each business journey. So on all these days, whenever you are travelling for business purposes, you have to make a record when you started the business journey, what was the meter reading and when you finished. The reason for each business journey, why you undertake that journey and any other detail that commissioner may require. Um, If the logbook records of actual business use have been insufficiently, because sometimes people maintain a logbook for a few days and then they stop maintaining it, then it will be called as insufficiently kept. Then deduction for motor vehicle expenses is limited to lesser of either proportion of actual business use or 25% of total use of motor vehicle, lesser of. So even if I use 60% of my vehicle for business, but I haven't maintained the complete record, I will be getting maximum 25% of the deduction. And if I have not maintained any records um, that can be used to establish the business record, then no deduction will be allowed. And under Section DE2, a person may use one of the two methods to calculate deduction for business use of motor vehicle. One is cost method based or on actual cost and the other is kilometre rate. Uh, For kilometre rate, commissioners sit and publish the rates that represent the average cost of operating a motor vehicle. So from time to time, These rates are revised because the um, petrol expenses and other costs keep changing. Expenditure in respect of motor vehicle includes registration, insurance, maintenance of motor vehicle, interest, petrol, um, and of course depreciation. So uh, if you don't want to use the um, kilometer rate, you can keep a record of all these expenses of motor vehicle and claim proportionately. These all are allowed. As deduction, the taxpayer can currently claim business portion of first fourteen thousand kilometer traveled by motor vehicle in a year at a rate of seventy six cents per kilometer. So, if you have traveled ten thousand kilometres using your vehicle for business, then at the rate of seventy cent seventy six cents, you can claim deduction. And if any travel is above 14,000 kilometres, then according to the type of the vehicle um, the tier 2 rate for petrol and diesel cars is 26 cents and petrol hybrid cars is 18 cents and for electric cars 9 cents per kilometre. This is above 14,000 kilometres. Um, but you have to record autometer reading every balance date to determine that when the vehicle has uh, exceeded 40000 kilometers. so every april 1 i will record a odometer reading say it is 30000 um, km on april 1 2018 then on 31 march 2019 my odometer reading is t- um, 50000 that means it is total 20000 Autometer reading, whole business use if it is that for first 14000 I will get the deduction at 76 cents per kilometer and the remaining 6,000 according to the type of the car, 26 cents or 18 cents, whatever maybe I'll get the deduction. Then um, besides motor vehicle expenses, another common item is home office expenses because especially the writers, they do work from home, and um, the home office expenses deductions, whether they can claim or not. A taxpayer who uses a part of their own to conduct income earning activity or business, IRD permits a deduction for the portion. Apportionment is based on floor space required. So whatever is the total area of your income earning activity, uh, one room or whatever, divide by total area of the house. If the room is not used exclusively for income earning activity, then the deduction is reduced by multiplying the result of above calculation by the amount of time you are using that room. Because sometimes the room is used 50% for business, 50% for private, then 50% will be allowed. Um, Say, for example, Emma operates her business from her home, The total floor area of her house is 250 square meter, one room 30 square meter is used exclusively for business. And she estimates that 20% of the use of the lounge also, which is 50 square meter, is for business related purposes. So how much deduction Ima will get? Um, One room 30 um, square meter divided by total area 250 plus lounge 50 square meter divided by total area 250 and lounge is used 20% for business of times 20. So Ima will get .12 plus .4% which is 16% of the total expenses as deduction. So in this case, subscription to internet service, daily newspaper will be fully deductible if it is established that she need internet or paper um, fully for business and other expenses, she will get sixteen percent reduction for carrying on business. And if she is paying for telephone calls, then um, if they are toll calls, hundred percent for business, hundred percent will be allowed. Otherwise, portion for rental for telephone uh, is based on the ratio of business uses divided by total uses. So, for example, Ima has incurred all these expenses on her house, as you could see, mortgage interest, rate, insurance, maintenance, power, telephone rental, business-related toll calls, rubbish removal, lawn moving, uh, depreciation, etc. So she will get hundred percent business-related toll calls, but other expenses she will get proportionately deduction. Um, we have to determine that how much area, which I've done, 0.16, so for other expenses, she'll get 0.16. But besides using that actual expense bias, as you could say, from this year only, from, um, which is ending 31 March 18, um, the IRD has issued a square meter rate as well. And IRD has said, this has been done first time, a square meter rate at $41.10. So she can also use a square meter rate um, or she can use the actual expenses, base. anything she wants to use. So what she'll do? Taxpayers who are able to claim a deduction for their actual mortgage interest and rates for rental costs. So if you want to use $41.50, you can use $41.60 for your expenses plus you will still get deduction for mortgage and rates um, proportionately or for everything as it says. Total premises costs times business proportion plus business square meters times square meter rate. So that's how for home office she can get deduction. Then of course uh, if you are paying for computer software and website expenses, you get deduction for that. Um, if you buy the software, you go, don't get deduction because that's your capital item, but, or if you upgrade the software, you don't get deduction. For maintenance of software, you get a deduction. Similarly, for maintenance of website, you get a deduction, but for developing or acquiring the website, you don't get a deduction because that's your capital nature item. Education expenses. Um, if you attend any conference or seminar, um, then your travel cost um, and accommodation expenses and um, fees to pay that uh, conference are deductible. So if you are coming here from um, any other place outside Oakland and you are paying for travel, accommodation, all that will be deductible. Entertainment expenses, if you are um, taking your clients out, um, for any lunch or dinner or meetings, then 50% of the expenses are deductible for food, drinks, etc. Um, And if there is any legal issue and you have to pay the fees to the solicitor or any other legal expenses, then up to $10,000 legal expenses are deductible, including accounting fees. And any damages cost incurred, they are very common in publishing um, like deformation or any other cost incurred, um, then they are fully deductible, like uh, payment made for humiliation, loss of dignity, etc. Um, and I have put here that all the resources are available on IRD website as well about uh, various questions you may have.
1: Let's just give a quick round of applause to all of our um, speakers. Thank you.
0: New Zealand Society of Authors, Te Pune Kaituhi o Aotearoa, PenNZ Incorporated, is the principal organisation representing writers in New Zealand. We want to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow in your professional development. That's why we started NZSA Web Workshops visit our website authors.org.nz to find out about these opportunities. Experienced writers and teachers will lead them and we hope that they help you to grow as a writer and face whatever tomorrow brings. Our website again is authors.org.nz.